Welcome to Hand Therapy Heroes, the premier podcast on hand and upper extremity rehabilitation. As a worldwide educator and developer of best-in-class hand therapy content, Susan Weiss, occupational therapist and certified hand therapist, brings you an array of hand therapy specialists, hand care solutions, and more. Welcome to Hand Therapy Heroes. Our hero for the next two amazing episodes has been mentioned by several of our other guests, and we had to search high and low to find this woman. So welcome Ms. Gwen Van Strand, who is a physical therapist and a hand therapist from The Hague in the Netherlands. After receiving her physical therapy degree, she went on to attend medical school and received her degree at Leiden University Medical School. She moved to the USA, where she then received a master's degree in hand therapy from VCU in Richmond, Virginia. Currently, she holds the position of founder and course director, as well as lecturer at the School for Hand Therapy at the National Institute of Postgraduate Allied Health Education in Amsfoort, the Netherlands and she is lecturer in the Department of Rehabilitation at Erasmus University in Rotterdam. Additionally, Gwen is the founder of the Dutch Society for Hand Therapy. This two-part series has gems you can use immediately in your practices. For her detailed reference list, please email us at info at handtherapy.com and please put Gwen in the subject line. The way I got into hands is kind of a funny story. Uh, If you look at my bio, I did physical therapy and then afterwards I did medical school. And this is because in Holland, you have this uh, lottery to get into medical school. And I really wanted to go to medical school, but I had the wrong number for three years. So I didn't get in. And then in my fourth year of physical therapy school, I got into medical school and I did the two of them together. So my last year of physical therapy and my first year of medical school. And then I got through the medical school part, the theoretical part, let's put it that way. That's the way it is in Holland. And then I had to go into my internships and I had another year and a half waiting time given to me. So I was getting a little sick of waiting all the time. So I figured, you know, I'm an American born person. I'm I'm Dutch, but I'm also American born. I'll go to the United States and see if I can do something fun there. And I looked for master degrees, um, anything medical, Uh, fun. And so um, I needed to use my physical therapy thing to get into uh, any kind of master's that was not like a medical school thing. I could not go to medical school in in, in the United States. So I ended up at Richmond, where uh, at the time I thought it was going to be nice weather because it was the same latitude as Madrid, which really was stupid. But looking back, I could have gone to New York. But I figured, you know, it's always raining in Holland. I'll go to Richmond. And uh, then I got there and there were, th- it was the old days when people still had pieces of paper in front of them instead of a computer screen. We're talking the early 1980s. And there were three stacks of paper. One was uh, anatomy, cell biology, blah, 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 that kind of stuff for the spine, big stack of paper. There was one knee big stack of paper and there was one legal pad that had hand and it only had one name on it 
And with my traumatizing experience of being having the wrong number to get into school all the time, I figured, you know, I'm number two on this list. I'm in. And that is why I chose hands. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and it ended up being such a fun thing to do. And I actually, I was in a class with three, an, uh, an occupational therapist. Oh, I forget her name. And, but uh, my, my, my buddy was uh, Julie Howell. Julie Howell and I went through master's, our master's degree together, and it was just such a fun experience, and with Dr. Merritt as my professor. Very cool. There you go. This is how we got into the relative motion thing. Julie stayed there and worked with Dr. Merritt for years, and I went to the Philadelphia Hand Center. The job was offered to me pretty much. I mean, I got there, and I got the job, which is really weird. Um, and so I figured, well, you know, I'll stay for a little while in the United States. It's actually kind of fun here. So I'll wait with the medical school stuff. And I wasn't so hot on the whole medical school thing anyway. So I, was, I mean, I liked it for the knowledge. But I like the fact that as a therapist, you spend so much more time with your patient. So I figured, you know, for a couple of years, it'll be fun. And that's how I ended up doing what I do now. <laughs> and never looking, never looking back either. Yeah, well, the, the thing that really was fun about this is that um, I always had kind of a link with the surgeons or the doctors because I also went to medical school. So I had the same kind of background with cell biology and pathology and that kind of stuff. So that helped me a lot. Awesome. Thank you yeah. so much for, for sharing your story. And I'm looking forward to picking your brain a little here on an array of topics. So I know we were just already diving in a little bit to relative motion, but let's start in a little bit more of an order talking on flexor tendons, which I know you have some passion in you about flexor tendons and discussing with us a little bit about protocols, versus patient-centered and some ideas with regards to that. So please share away. Yeah, well, um, to set the stage, I'm never for one protocol. I do uh, advocate early active or active, and I really wanna just put in right here that I think the term true active should never be used because what is untrue or false active? There, true active is, seems like a, an unnecessary term. It's either active or passive. We're moving it active or passively. Basically, that's what we should say. So don't make it even more confusing by saying true active. But um, what I advocate is that therapists do not learn protocols. You have to learn the anatomy, the biomechanics, the wound healing, the work of flexion variables, and how they affect the rehabilitation process. And then you can do a patient-centered clinical decision on how to executive, uh, execute rehabilitation using whatever is needed for that particular patient with that particular injury. And let us not forget the variables as dominance, work hobbies, age, uh, compliance of the patients, all that kind of stuff should go in there. You can never really do a protocol word for word for every patient. That way you don't get the best result. You get an average good result, but never the best result. If you want to improve, you have to be specific and look at the patient, the injury, what kind of surgery was done, what kind of suture was used. Everything together gives you um, your best bet at getting a good result. It's harder for therapists because they have to learn a lot. They have to do a lot on studying on biomechanics, wound healing, anatomy, all that kind of stuff. 
And this was actually decided in Berlin and decided by the surgeons at the big panel. I don't know if you were there. And they said we should work not by protocols, but by patient-centered treatments. So um, just, just to give an example, um, if a surgeon were to operate on a tendon injury, if they would follow a strict protocol, one type of suture, one type of anesthesia, one type of surgical approach into the finger, specific preset pulley venting, always the same, uh, always the FDS slip removed. I mean, just imagine that would be the protocol for the surgeon. That would never give you good results. The surgeon knows has you know four plus strand, which could be four, six, eight, could also be two if he decides at the point when he goes in like, oof, I can't do a four, I have to do a two. You know, there's always this decision-making when they go in, how they go in, what kind of injury is there already? The FDS slip, it's always, you know, you can go a lot of ways that with, with this deciding if you want to remove it or not. And they do this based on their clinical decision-making skills. Now we, as therapists, we don't get the same patient. We get a patient with or without edema. There's a stiff finger, there's not a stiff finger, multiple single digit contaminated wound, sharp versus blunt a five-year-old or a 30-year-old or an 80-year-old? Is there medication? There's all kinds of things that should make us realize that there's not one protocol, but you have to choose what fits that patient best. And I think that would be interesting to talk about because with surgeons especially, because they always complain to us, it was actually in an article, and here we go, article by Bigoro in 2018, who, where they looked, they did a questionnaire with surgeons and therapists. And the surgeon said, well, we have a protocol. And they said, it's a four plus strand suture and uh, epitendin is circumferential, pulley venting in general. I mean, that's not a protocol. That's just saying that you're gonna do pulley venting, but how much and which, no specifics there. And then they complained that the therapist had too many different versions of the post-op uh, rehabilitation protocol, which to me seems kind of funny because when they say pulley venting, how precise are they? And we should not be so ashamed or scared to say that we have certain things that we actually know that we should look at, but our protocol can vary. And it should depend on what kind of patient and what kind of injury you have, well, all those variables that I just mentioned. So that's my take on the protocol, and just like a simple thing, if you look at the protocol by uh, Lalonde and Higgins, yes, they have the long splint, and after two weeks, they go to a short splint. Mm -hmm. Why two weeks? <laughs> some of my patients go at day one, and some stay in a long splint for like four weeks because they're very anxious patients. They're scared. I don't care. I'll get the best result for them, and if they're scared to go to a short splint, I won't do it. And if I feel that it would be better for them, I'll convince them and I'll do it. And it could be at one week, it could be at two weeks, it could be at three weeks. There's not such a thing that every patient should be in a short splint at two weeks or at zero day, day zero. So that's my feeling about how we should look at protocols and how I don't feel that it's a good idea. <laughs> right, I, I love that you mentioned that protocols, I think are guidelines as you've led up to that to give therapists a guide so where therapists especially new therapists and a lot of our listeners here are new therapists have concerns is there's so many so 
what are the best ways for them to just get a handle on the things that you talked about, like work of flexion on its own? Can you talk a little bit about work of flexion and how they're going to understand that a little better so they know how to incorporate that into their patient care? Um, yes, uh, work of flexion. I guess, well, maybe we should actually, yeah, we could do work of flexion first. I, I think the wound healing is probably one of the big things that people, that we should right. talk about. We should miss that one. Okay. But, you know, work of flexion is a good one. Um, there's actually a really good article. Well, first of all, it was described by uh, Amadio, uh, and that was in 2006 in the Journal of Hand Therapy. Uh, he described this whole work reflection thing with internal work reflection being inside the tendon issues and external work reflection, which is outside the tendon and with the surrounding tissues. But I would like to say there's, an, there's a couple of other articles that are actually even better. Well, not better, but expanded on this whole, whole thing. First of all, the article by Wong and Peck in 2014, uh, they describe... Uh, both the uh, wound healing, but also the work of flexion issues. And Woot and Tang in 2013 had a whole article about lowering the work of flexion. And it comes out that 75% of the issues, the variables that uh, affect our work of flexion are therapist related. Hmm. 25%, which is the pulley venting, is surgery related. All the other stuff, is therapist related. It's stiff joints, it's edema, it's positioning of the hand, all that stuff affects our work of flexion and it's all therapist related. Position of your splint, how much edema is there? And if you use edema, I know, I know Don and I have, Don, Dr. Lalong, I have this whole discussion about Coban and he says it doesn't uh, increase work of flexion, but there are actually two articles, and here we go again, Glass <laughs> Phillips, <laughs> Glassley and Phillips, and uh, in 2012, Buono Core, beautiful name, um, Buono Coro did a cadaver study and the external work reflection by the tape actually increased. And Glassley and Phillips also did an article and um, they looked at range of motion. And the range of motion was less with uh, Coban. Uh, the spiral one actually did, was the worst and the circular one was slightly better, but it reduced the work of uh, the, the range of motion, which indicates it reduces the work of flexion, it increases the work of flexion. So these are a couple of articles that tell you about work of flexion. And we could go into a lot of detail here, but if you read those articles, you'll be fine. It tells you exactly what is going on. And like I said, if you have a fat finger, it's harder to bend it. Your work reflection is up. Now the edema can be inside the tendon because of the swelling of the tendon itself, but it can also be edema of the finger on the volar side. That gives a lot of uh, increase of work reflection too. And then of course the stiff joint, if you have to move a stiff joint, it'll be harder. If you move it first and you do some passive motion before, then the work reflection is lower. And uh, positioning, well, we all know if you put your wrist down in flexion and your hand all the way down in flexion at your MP joint, and then you try to start moving your fingers into flexion, you feel that it's really hard. And if you put it into wrist in extension and just, you know, the tenodesis kind of thing, you put your wrist back, then it's easy to do it. Well, if it's easy to do it, your work of flexion is low. Mm -hmm. If it's hard to flex, then your work of flexion is high. So you can feel it. 
Now, your question about how do therapists know what to do, I'm a big fan of observing what's happening. If you put somebody in a splint, and of course, general guidelines are there, how you should put them in a splint. You should not put them in a wrist flexion. We know that now. But if you put them in a splint and you are working on your MP flexion, how much MP flexion should there be? I know you can go to Cursa and Etzfeld and all kinds of articles that tell you exactly how much force is on there and what is better. I could go into that, but that would give us like a whole day of talking. <laughs> but what you do is you put the hand in the splint, of course, wrist and a little bit of extension. And then you ask the patient to just move a little bit. If you see that they have trouble moving a DIP, then maybe you should adjust a little bit and see if you decrease the amount of MP flexion that they have a less hard time moving at the DIP joint. Now, the other way around, you have to think about two things here. Then you ask them to extend. If they have a hard time extending at the PIP joint, then maybe you should, you need, and here we go, a little bit into relative motion thought, you maybe need a little bit of pressure at the proximal phalanx or the dorsum to give a little thing to work against to actually get good PIP extension. And I'm hoping that people can follow this. So you look at how they move just a little bit, just to see if it works. And then you decide what is the best position. And you know, following the guidelines, but adjusting it for what you see happening. That's probably all, most of the stuff that I do is because I looked at what they were doing and I figured, huh, that DIP is not moving. And I was always worried about the FDP. Mm -hmm. And so I figured, you know, I got to get that DIP going. Hmm. Let's see how we can get it to work. And I work with the patient and then you decide. So guidelines, yes, but really just look at the patient, how they move and if they're comfortable moving. And add to that just a little, before I forget, uh -huh. people are very anxious and scared. Yes. Now, Don Juan has the option of talking to his patients in his OR. So that's great. I mean, if everybody did that, that's fine. But we know not everybody does that. Okay. So you get the patient like three or four days later, and they're terrified. Everything hurts. What, what do you mean, move my DIP? They, don't know, they have no idea what that is. And even we can't do that just in, you know, holding your hand up in the air, say like, can you move the DIP of your ring finger? No one can do that. And if you're hurtful, everything is hurting and painful, you don't do it. So what I do, even if they're, you know, getting towards their splint or even if they're in the splint, I will get that mug, maybe not very hot tea because that would be dangerous, mm -hmm. but warm. And you just put their hand there and it, especially if it's a single digit thing, you just put your fingers around it. Okay, now try to see if you can get the pulp on there, which is like maybe 10 degrees of flexion of your DIP. Just try to touch the mug with your finger. And they're not scared to do it because they're doing something that they do every day, like putting their hand around a mug. And then when they feel, I said, try to see if you can get the pulp. Can you feel touching the mug? Okay, great. Now lift up just that little bit of your tip of your finger and then you just talk them through it. They're not working on flexing their finger anymore. They're just trying to put their hand around a mug. That takes away all the anxiety and suddenly they can move. And this works for a lot of things in therapy actually, but for the flexor tendons, it can work too. And it's not dangerous, we know, so. Yeah, incorporating the functional aspect is a brilliant means of it reducing the anxiety for sure. Right, right, right. 
exactly. So look at your patient. I think observation is key. Agree. And two things I'm going to circle back to. One, for the articles that you are sharing, I am going to have a summary sheet for those listening. Please, you'll email info at handtherapy.com and I will have that created for you. So don't worry about trying to rapidly write everything down with all the brilliant article references we're getting. So I wanted to put that out there first. And secondly, you did say we were going to circle on to wound healing and the game changers with wound healing. I think this would be a fabulous time for you to share that. Yes. Well, the wound healing is amazing. And the articles for that are by Wong, W-O-N-G. And um, uh, he, and, and the other article is by Core, K-O-H-R. I'm, I'm actually jotting everything down here. So I'm making sure you're going to get those. Perfect. Um, these all talk about a major change that has happened. Um, basically, what happened is that Wong looked at um, uh, he looked at the wound healing as we knew it. Uh, there was uh, an injury, and then you get a couple of days of cellularity, and then you get the macrophages, and you, you know, the whole story. Everybody knows this. I think by now everybody's familiar with this. But in 2009, he wrote an article, and he said there is actually a paradigm shift. He looked at tendon apart from surrounding tissues. So how do these heal? And it is amazing and kind of shocking, actually, that he found out that collagen synthesis is at its top for the surrounding tissues at three to 10 days. This is the story that we know. But for tendon, it doesn't peak till 21 days and it doesn't start till seven or 10 days. So it's actually lagging behind the tendon. So this is really a new thing that you have to think about surrounding tissues starting way earlier making collagen and all kinds of other stuff. The whole, the whole wound healing is actually lagging behind for the tendon compared to surrounding tissues, which means that by 21 days, when the, actually the tendon is starting to be strong enough because the collagen is being put down there, actually the surrounding tissues are done. So your adhesions are done by 21 days and your tendon is not. So this is sort of getting to the point like, okay, what do we do then? Well, you have to start moving early, but we don't have the strong tendon basically that we thought we had, so you need a strong suture. So this is how everybody got around to, okay, we gotta get strong sutures, we need the four strand, the two strand is probably not enough, although I have done many early active with two strands and they did great, <laughs> but that's because I was doing patient-centered care. Um, but um, that is uh, an amazing paradigm shift, and we have to think about this. So um, the whole wound healing as we knew it should be studied again, and people should read the articles by, do by Dr. Wong and the article by Core, which is also with Con uh, Wong, actually, it's the same group. And um, you know, think about that when you're working with your patient. Where are they with their surrounding tissues, and where are they with the tendon? And do we have a strong enough suture? And that's basically what you should be thinking about. And the other thing is there's beautiful videos in these articles mm. that you can download for free. And they show you 
first of all, uh, this whole thing about the adhesion formation, uh, but also he found that around the suture, there's actually a very large acellular area around the suture. So wherever you put the suture, where you put the grip of the suture, there's actually no cells at all. And there's a lot of inflammatory reactions around sutures, which is not good. But mm -hmm. I asked him again, I said, so I, I, for this talk, I actually emailed him and I said, Dr. Wong, so how should we talk about this, this acellularity around the suture and that the suture causes inflammatory reactions? He says, well, you know, basically movement is key and glide is king. <laughs> and he <laughs> says, we just have to make sure that our sutures are strong enough because you do have to move and you do have to glide. So there's your story again. The suture has to be strong because we have to move. We can't wait. Right. That's what's really interesting about that with that 21 days, all the adhesions that are formed in, in essence, your, your tendons just starting to do its healing. And the only reason you were able to move early was because of the strong suture. So you feel like the early on in, in the stage where, where it's a little bit confusing is in early on in the stages, it's not the tendon that's providing any healing and it's the tissues around it that are healing and scarring. So people are thinking, oh, my tendon's scarring, but it's not the tendon, it's everything around the tendon. Right, exactly. And that's why sometimes two-strand sutures will do fine. If you have a perfect gliding tendon with a two-strand suture, there's no adhesion being formed, nothing. It will glide fine. I had a patient like that. I only saw her four times. She was doing fine. Mm -hmm. And I didn't exercise her very much because she wasn't getting all these adhesions. She could move full range of motion with her two strand on a pinky uh, within two days when I saw her. And she was like, oh, full flexion. I was like, okay, we're not going to do that too much. We're not going to exercise every hour. You just check every, you know, three, four hours, like three times a day. Check if it's still doing it. Just first passively, always passively move it so it's nice and loose. If you can still make your full flexion, done with your exercise, don't do anything more because nothing is happening. Nothing's happening. We're not scarring down the tendon. And the tendon had a suture that was apparently strong enough and we're not going to push it too much because if I would have done it every hour and all the exercise. So, and she had a perfect result. But I never pushed her. So you have to think about, you know, what is going on with the surrounding tissues and the tendon. What you said was actually spot on. We need that suture. And um, if you don't have adhesions, then you don't have to exercise as much. And if you do, then the surrounding tissues are at fault. And the tendon is still hanging on to a suture till about, you know, 21 days. Right. So the suture is just keeping it all together and nothing's really happening around it to cause the negative impact that you would see perhaps on something that maybe even the same tendon that had a, a four strand repair because the way the tissue was handled would have had a more massive scarring result because of just the way the tissue was handled in the surgery. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's also an important thing that we know now that the surrounding tissues are really bad, bad news. Mm -hmm. And we're putting it very black and white here. I mean, of course, you have to study this, and it's, it's never black and white like this, but the, the, the graphs in the article are pretty clear, mm -hmm. and uh, if you read it, it's really interesting. It's, it looks like it's hard to read, but it is not, because he has all these nice little graphs that show you the uh, temporization, so that the time frames that of healing, which is nice, and you can use that. You can put it in your practice, put it on your, on your, uh, on your clipboard, and you can look at it like, what was it again? All oh, right, there it is. 
and it helps teaching your patient too when you have those visual aids. I think so. Educated patients are I, much easier to work with. They do so much better. And they do. And they Actually, do. Yeah. And that kind of goes into the next talking point was about ruptures and what happens and tenolysis and what are, how are those players and how do we avoid ruptures? Well, the interesting thing is that I really, really want to mention here, uh, and this is again from the Wong, no, no, from the core article, but also he mentioned also in the Wong article, 2014, he wrote that with Fiona Peck. Uh, she's from the Manchester Splint. Um, if you look at complications that require reoperation re in tendon injuries, 58% of that is tenolysis. Only 35% is ruptures. Mm -hmm. And 4% is the combination of rupture and tenolysis. So why, 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 why do we focus so much on ruptures? We basically, with all our knowledge, got the ruptures down to what is sort of most, well, what is, what is to be done with a patient that is compliant because we have this group of patients that will always have a rupture because they just don't do what you say. And we're pretty much down to that. Um, and the other thing is, if you go to the literature, the results after second surgery, after you had a rupture, so a, re, a rupture and they reattach it, those results are really good. Mm -hmm. If you go to the results after a tenolysis, they're often not very good. And you know that it's yes. really a struggle. And the other thing is, if you think about this in terms of time out of work, which is a big issue here in Europe, and it's becoming more of a big issue in the United States, I think, if you have a tenolysis, you already went through three months or four months, because they always tell you to wait till about 12 or maybe even weeks or six months, and then they will do the tenolysis, because just in case it gets a little better. And then you have to do the tenolysis with another three months of therapy. You're out of work for nine months. If you have a rupture, it usually happens in the first, whatever, six, 12 weeks. They reattach it, you get another 12 weeks and you're done before you're at four, four five, six months. So you're out of work a lot less. Another thing that needs to be known about ruptures is the two strands rupture in the first four weeks mostly, but the multi-strands rupture from week four to eight, or even beyond that. They have a tendency to rupture later on. They think that is because there's less healing. And of course, if you think about how many strands go through that tendon end, there's not a lot of tissue left to connect to the other side. Right. Because the, the sutures take, take up a lot of space there. And think about Wong, um, you get acellularity around sutures. No healing going on there. So in the beginning, it's strong because you have the suture. But then after eight weeks, then a lot of times you do see ruptures with the multi-strands. So there is a little confusion there about when the ruptures are happening. But if you go to the four plus strand sutures, and if you're careful and if things work well, it's fine. Uh, but they do rupture later on. But again, if you think about rupturing and how quickly you can get back to therapy and finally get out of uh, therapy altogether and go back to work, I think I would rather, if you would have to have a complication, I think I would rather have a rupture mm -hmm. because it gets dealt with quickly. 
you can keep going and then you're off the hook and if and the results are pretty good with a tenolysis it's uh usually you're out of work for like an, a year or something like that if you have a, a manual job hmm. so i think these things should be read by everybody like the, the the less experienced therapists go to these articles by wong because he describes this really well and don't be too scared of that rupture thing if you're careful you probably not going to see that many ruptures if you have a good surgeon. Tenolysis, on the other hand, we see that a lot. Mm -hmm. The numbers are not surprising to me. I always said tenolysis should be in all those RCTs, and that's my, my thing. And, and Najduski, she just had an article in the Journal of Hand Therapy, Najduski, uh, a review of flexor tendons, 2019. It was in the latest, I think. Um, and she also, she compared things and, and, and she's in her conclusion, she says, well, you know, we probably should look more at, uh, tenolysis and some other things. I can get back to that article, but most of the articles and research up to now focus on ruptures, but they mention tenolysis, which is just as much a failed result. If so not more like you're saying, yeah, but they're never, they're never put into these articles. Mm -hmm. Never. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen a review or an RCT or anything where they put as one of the variables in their tenolysis. Ruptures always, but that's only 35%. So I'm always wondering about why they don't want to do this. Uh, it's it's a, a puzzle to me. A, a good food for thought on that one. <laughs> Let, let's talk about RCTs since you jumped into that a little bit and about grading results and comparing protocols. What, what are your thoughts on this? Well, that's also a good one for therapists. I mean, experienced therapists know this stuff, but okay. maybe experienced therapists maybe not know this. But we have these different ways of looking at the results. And unfortunately, I think, and I'm a PT, so I'm not an OT, uh, they look at range of motion a lot and grip strength. And to me, that's just how you measure and I'll get to that, how you measure that. But I think, first of all, I would like to say, when are we going to uh, rate these things by how functional people are? Because I think that's so much more important than if you have 10 or 20 or 30 degrees of flexion or extension. All right, so that's one thing. I think we should have way more things about how well they can function with their hand. But you need to know how well they're doing. And then you get into this measuring thing. And, uh, well, bear with me. There's, there's one article that actually is a very nice article. It's a German article by Hahn in 2016. And they looked at Buck Ramco, which is mostly used in Europe, but some of the U.S. people use it. Then you have Strickland, where you have two versions, the 1980 and the 1985, and you have the ASSH. And the big difference between Buck Ramco and the Strickland measurements uh, systems, and uh, Najduski also refers to this whole thing, is that Buck Ramco includes the MCP joint, and Strickland doesn't. Now, the big difference is if you have, and they have a beautiful picture of a patient in that article where you can see what's happening. It's just so hilarious. I presented it in Germany, actually. It's kind of funny. Um, if you have an MCP that is really mobile, you can flex really far and you're measuring total active motion, MCP plus PIP plus DIP. Now, if the MCP can go, let's say 30 degrees beyond what it normally goes, 
then you have a 30 degree that you can lose on your PIP and DIP and still have the same result. Right. Where you can have no DIP flexion at all, but it's all taken up by the MCP, so you still have a good TAM. So that's one thing that I think the MCP should never be included. If you want to know PIP and DIP flexion, MCP doesn't even have any kind of flex, uh, extens, uh, extrinsic flexor function in there. It's, it's intrinsic mostly. So it has nothing to do with FDP and FDS. Then the other thing is that if you extend, then they factor in an extension lag. The Buck Grant book says they have a scale of three, two, one, zero. So three would be excellent. And they accept up to a 30 degree flexion contracture. Now, if you see a 30 degree flexion contraction, do you think, whoa, great result? I don't, I think that's, that's terrible. 30 degrees, that's a lot. And then from 30, 30 to 50 degrees is the number two one, which is still sort of the good one, you know? It, it just boggles my mind that they accept that kind of extension lag or, or flexion contraction, whatever you want to say. So um, Buck Ramco to me, uh, and in that article, actually, there's this photograph of a patient. And the same patient graded by Buck Gramco has an excellent result with Buck Gramco. And then if you do the Strickland on that same patient, it is bad. So that's how far it is apart. And they actually put that into perspective there. And then the Strickland, a lot of people don't know this, but the Strickland original, 1981, they have um, a window of excellent good of 70 to 100% that's where you fall into. And then when 1985, somehow they changed that to a 50% to 100% excellent good, which is to me a far too lenient way of judging actually, because that means that half of your patients are good and excellent and the other half are not, which is to me not really being very critical. Mm -hmm. You accept a lot of stuff that would, you know, if it was your hand, you probably wouldn't think that was an excellent to good result. So you should use the original 1980, but most of people use the 1985 version, which is not the good one. So this is how you read all these reviews and all these RC. Everybody is talking about outcomes and outcomes. And basically you have to look at what are they measuring and what are they accepting as a good result. And then you get to these things, and this is a funny little article by Rigo et al., which you don't have to look up, but it was in 2017. And they have this cute conclusion here where my question at the end is, and I'll, I'll tell you this, I'll, I'll quote, we failed to find that adding active finger flexion to the modified Kleinart regime improves the overall long-term results of repairs in zone one to three. So there was no difference if you added active to the Kleinart. Then it comes. Though recovery appeared faster, and the good and excellent recovery of zone two repairs was 70% higher with the active flexion protocol added. Now, if it was your hand, to me, that would be convincing stuff saying like, give me the active stuff because if I get faster recovery, good and excellent recovery, 17% higher chance, that's the one I want. But the measurements didn't show that difference. How can that be? So there you go. If it's your finger, if you, every patient that you get in front of you, you should actually picture it being your hand. So like, what would I want to happen to my hand? And then you take sometimes a little bit of a risk with the active, but it's not very much, just not much of a difference. And you get so much better 
not better results, but you get faster results that are good and people can go back to work faster. Um, it's just, you know, there's other things that we should measure mm -hmm. than just range of motion. If the range of motion is the same, but you can get back to work two months earlier, well, that would be my protocol. That's a, a huge difference. I know, yeah. So this is how you should read these articles. And that's just, you know, for people that, that look at, that get sort of like flustered by all the stuff that you get thrown at yourself. It's just so much stuff. And then the, again, the tenolysis should be included and then they're never included in all these articles. It's always rupture rate, rupture rate, rupture rate. Right. And the information overload for therapists, especially new therapists, it's, it's dramatic. I know. But if you get to read through it a little bit more, you know, coach through it like this, then it usually is easy to, 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 to weed out the stuff that makes it, um, well, not convincing because they always say, well, it doesn't make that much of a difference if you look at range of motion. But if it makes a big difference in activities that you can do at an earlier stage and the range of motion is not that big of a difference, then, you know, you want the one that gets you better earlier. Exactly. So that's my take on those things. If it says, at, you know, at four or six weeks, the results are better, but at 12 weeks, they're the same. Then to me, the four to six weeks good results seems to me like a better deal than waiting 12 weeks for the same result. What about the place and hold that was utilized and is utilized by many practices? Can you review a little bit about place and hold versus active, true active or active <laughs> or place and hold? Well, place and hold is active. It's just as active as what I do with, without the placehold. Active is active. Passive is passive. I, I just get tired of the true active thing because I always ask people like, okay, what was the untrue active? Which one is that? Which is the false active? Right. There, there's only one way of moving actively. That's you know, using your muscle and moving the tendon. That's active. If you don't use the muscle, you, you, you slide it because something else is moving like your extensor, then it's passive. But anyway, so we're gonna go place and hold, yay. Well, we get to that funny thing about the buckle and jerk thing uh, by Don Lund, and I told you that there was a funny story about that. Um, way back in, in, in India, when we were at the um, uh, world meeting there, that's when I first met Don, and he wanted to, he, he came up to me and he was so nice because he loved my, theory about the place hold he asked me to come along and he gave me ex he gave me so much more exposure and he takes me on, on on meetings and stuff and i'm very thankful for that because we get the message out the thing that i always show he has the little film but for years before that film i always presented a picture of a car being towed now we all well if you're driving a car um, we all know how when you have to tow a car, you're the front car, you sort of start moving and then you doink, you get this, oh, oh, there's the tension. And then it takes a little while and then suddenly the, the line is taut and then you move very easily and you can drive for, for hundreds of kilometers and it's fine. But it always has this little doink at the beginning, you know, adjusting for the right tension and then you go. I always had that car towing slide up there and people immediately said oh, yeah, that's right you get that little jug that little tug i mean the little tug uh, and then once the the the, the, uh, the tension is there then everything moves smoothly and that was a theory that was in my head i thought about that. i do crazy things i always like to picture things 
And so that for me was for years before India already my slide. And he loved that slide. And then at a certain point when we were working together a lot, I said, God, Don, you, you always have these hands open. Can you check it for me, this car towing thing, please? So he went in and he checked my car towing thing. And then he saw exactly what I said, that it, it buckles, it hangs loose, and then you get a sudden jerk on it. Exactly what I was describing was happening. So then he went off with his buckle and jerk theory and everything. And he's, thank God, he's putting it out there because I think it's really important that we realize that when it hangs loose and then you start pulling on it, that you do get this little jerk on it. But, you know, in theory, the suture sh should be strong enough. Okay. But I have another thing with placehold because I have more things about this. I'm very much into motivating people to do the right thing because I do not believe if you get, give little booklets with these are the exercises you have to do that anybody does those. Same as we know that two-thirds of the patients, even with the Kleinert splint, took the splint off. Sure. People don't do what we say them to. I, I mean, I don't. I mean, I had my Achilles tendon ruptured. I never did my exercises. Unless I was standing in front of my stairs, going up to my bedroom, thinking, oh, shoot. <laughs> and I would do my exercise because the, the stairs triggered me. Now, about the placehold, and I see that there is... Uh, a place for placehold. If people are scared, you can move them passively and then you hold them at whatever you get as free motion passively by working their hand. And then you ask them to hold it in that position, not full flexion, but where you do. But that only happens when they're in therapy because really patients don't spend a lot of time doing passively. We, we think they do, but they don't. So they start doing active anyway. But here the thing is, if you put it in full flexion and you ask them to hold it, usually, and you can correct me if, you, if I'm wrong, but most of my patients, it would not be held in full flexion. It would jump back a little bit. Right. And what they would say is like, oh, it doesn't work. Right. It's not working. They didn't fix it. Sure. I can't hold a fist. So they try harder. Now that's the danger. Then they say, oh, I gotta get it. I gotta get it. And they do too much. That's one danger, but the worst thing that I had, I saw their face and saying like, oh, it doesn't work. And I would say, yes, it does. Look, if you put it a little bit straight, you move, see, you, it moves. So that convinces them, not the placehold. And if you don't do the active thing and only do the placehold where it sort of bounces back and they can't hold the position that you put them in, then they're disillusioned and they're like, oh, it's just not gonna work. It's not doing it. I want them to be motivated and all day long when they're sitting there looking at the hand like, oh, yeah, it's moving. And even if they only do it like two or three millimeters, oh yes, yeah, it's still working. The tip is moving. It's still working. That to me is more important than doing every hour place hold, which they usually don't do every hour. And if they do it three times a day, you're lucky. And that is not enough exercise for me to get the tendon gliding. So I'd rather have them wiggle around a little bit and looking at it and seeing it move like, oh my God, it's working, it's working, it's working that brings them the motivation to do the exercises. So that's my thing on placehold. I think you get better results. Placehold is not bad. It's just not as great results. You can use it here and there. I, sometimes I do use it, but most of the time I want people to feel that what is going on with their tendon and that they see that it's working. So there you go, that's my take on it. And, I'll tell you the truth, with a uh, placehold, you do need a lot of therapy because usually you have to do 
be passive stuff and place hold because they're not really good at it. I mean, it's our job. <laughs> they only have to do it this six to 12 weeks when they're sitting with their stupid hand injury. They're not <laughs> good at it. But if you think about my, my average therapy visits, since I've been doing that active um, uh, take, the active, early active or active um, with uh, working with a patient and motivating them, my average therapy visits were between five and eight times for flexor tendons. That's not a lot. Not a lot. I know. And placeholders is usually like two times a week. I didn't see them two times a week. I saw them at the beginning and then missed them for two weeks because they knew exactly what they had to do. And they were moving around and they were going around circles. And I have this whole thing about bottle of wine, mug, condiment or deodorant, and then a cork and then a lip balm, like smaller circumferential uh, uh, measurements. And I would have them work with those things. And, um, they had a perfect understanding and they were not, they didn't need me. So place hold, they need you. You make them more therapy dependent. Right. With the active motion, they understand where they're supposed to be and you're giving them set parameters of how much active motion. Cause that kind of rolls into a little bit of the question of therapists often ask is, well, you're talking about active flexion and flexor tendons, how much active flexion? Mm -hmm. Well, that's, I, I use the, and actually the wine bottles, you have to have white wine because the red wine has like a shoulder shape, but the white wine usually have like a nice gradual shape going from large to small and they can go up the bottle and, and then you should tell them not to drink too much, but. Um, <laughs> it might make it easier to do the flexion. I know, I know. But you can find stuff that they can sort of put in the palm of their hand and then move and, and they know exactly what to do. And if you use stuff that they see a lot, like the mug, people drink coffee like five times a day. So they exercise five times a day because they see the glass with a mug in front of them. They're like, oh, right, okay, let's do exercise. And they do their exercise because the mug is there. Like me with my Achilles tendon seeing the stairs, thinking like, oh, I should have done the exercises. While asking them to get the booklet that's stuck on the refrigerator, take it down, put it in front of them, read what I should do. That doesn't happen too much. I, I'm sure that patients tell you they do, but I'm not so sure that they're actually doing what <laughs> you want them to do. But the mug is like a set thing, and they have the same mug. And they'll, some patients say, I got my favorite mug because it's just the right circle, you know, and it's, the, the size is just perfect. They get all excited about the mug that they're doing it with. So this is how you get people engaged in their own therapy. And then you don't need to do that much anymore. And um, well, yeah, that's, yeah, that's pretty much. And then, you know, the scratch thing you were saying about how far, this is a good one to get to the scratch test sure. discussed by, discussed by uh, Amanda Higgins. The funny thing is about that is that it was actually a way of, great you know what what therapists ask like how how far do you move and this is from the 1980s mind you in the uk and sheila harris was the therapist who actually thought about this idea like the first week you go to the index finger then you take that away and then the second week you go to your second finger the middle finger and then the third week you go to the ring finger and the fourth week you're on your pinky and the fifth week you're down to full flexion so this was just a way of slowing people down. That's what I use it for sometimes, for people that are too much into, I wanna get all the way to full flexion right away, although my little mug usually works better. But um, that's how it started. 
This was their protocol. But then I was looking at it, and here we go back to the beginning of our talk. I was observing it and looking at it. And if you do this with yourself, you can see that you can do this exercise to your index finger with no DIP motion at all. Nice PIP, no DIP. How can I get that DIP to move? So here I was, ah, if you scratch the back of the finger, there you get the DIP motion. So don't take the finger away, leave it up there and scratch the back of the finger. And immediately you see that there's some DIP motion. Mm -hmm. This is also how I got to the twirling glass exercise that I'm very famous for, <laughs> I have heard. But it was only because I was sitting there with my patient and I had a glass of water. And I was like, you gotta move that DIP. And I was twirling the glass and said, this is what you need to do. I did it because it was in front of me. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about how can I make an exercise, blah, blah, blah. It was sitting in front of me and I was just with this patient who just didn't get it. And then we had this glass. I said, try the glass, see if you can do it then. And whoops, there she went right away to write exactly what I wanted. So the twirling glass, the curling around your mobile phone, all that stuff came up because I was sitting there at the table frustrated that a patient didn't do the movement the way I wanted them to do it. I wanted to see that DIP move and not the MP go into flexion, all that kind of stuff. So here you go. Um, I was working with this, uh, where was I? With the, uh, uh, with the scratch test. And then when I was doing this, I realized that the reason why they find it easier to do it with scratching the back of the finger, if you give that commando, they're not flexing their digit, as we say. They were scratching the back of their finger, which is a totally different thing to do. They feel it, and their brain is telling them to scratch the finger, not to bend the DIP joint, which is a weird commando to give to somebody. Can you bend your DIP joint? Not a lot of people can do that. But if you say scratch the finger in that position, they will do exactly what you want. So basically, how do you say how far they can move? They should not move too far. And the way you can do that is by using all these things. Now, scientifically, uh, it was, of course, Dr. Tang, and he has a whole range of articles starting in 2003 all the way up to now, uh, talking about half a fist. And I really like to, I always like to present the, the entire scientific background for that, which is really intricate. But basically it comes down to if you go into a little bit of flexion, the work of flexion goes up a little bit because your tendon is pulling around the curve. Then you go into more flexion, the curves get sharper, the work of flexion goes up. And you go into more and more flexion and the work of flexion will go up. And Tang measured this and he found that if you go up to half a fist, the work of flexion is acceptable. If you go beyond half a fist, it gets tricky and you see ruptures. Unless, and this is why they know it's the angle that the tendon is pulled around an angle, when they cut the pulleys or vented the pulleys, the ruptures didn't happen. So it's the tendon going a sharp angle, pulled through those pulleys, and then you see ruptures because there's too much friction, and the friction is basically work of flexion. So up to half a fist is what you should do. And then again, watch them do it because if they go from the MP joint, nothing is happening with your flexor tendon. You have to hold the MP joint slightly about 20, 30 degrees max and then move with your fingers. And you can find any kind of whatever is around you to do that. You can do it even with your hand flat on the table. As long as your MP joint is not moving too much and they're moving from the PIP and DIP joint and don't go beyond a third or half a fist. 
that, that's, that's critical what you said about the MP joint because a lot of them are doing the bye-bye. They're just waving bye-bye and they think they're doing their exercise and they're not getting any glide at the FTP. Exactly. Because there's no glide. We know that from Judy Kolditz. She looked at this in her, in her pearls. Uh, she showed that if you move from the MP joint, there is no glide of the FDS and FDP. Nothing. So you have to move from the PIP and DIP joint. So that's where you have to see the movement happening. If you don't see it happening, work on it. I'm, I know that Fiona Peck in her Manchester protocol, she sometimes puts a strap a little bit too high. So they have to curl around it. Don't push against it, curl around it. And then you get the movement that you want. And sometimes you have to go to those lengths to get the PIP and DIP to move and not the MP. Another thing about the brain cortex thing is uh, what I always like to mention, if you move for, or if you immobilize your, your finger in extension for two days or three days, you have already lost some of the cortex information, sensory and motor is already gone. So if you take it off the splint, if you put the splint on just a regular hand, your hand, and you, you put the finger in a, in a static splint, and you move from the MP joint, that becomes the normal. Mm -hmm. And then when you take it off, they will keep moving like that because that's easier. And that's how they already have changed their, their movement pattern. And you see this with knee replacements too. They walk with the funny hip, you know, they lift their hip when they have a bad knee and they put the new knee in and they keep walking that funny way. You have to correct that. And we have to do the same thing in the hand. If they move in a certain way that's not normal, then you have to correct that and look for why it is. So immobilization can sometimes be really a bad idea, but a stiff joint is basically the same as immobilization. So if your finger doesn't move except from the MP joint, then there's no reason why they, in two weeks time, should start moving a different way. And think about atenolysis again. If you're not moving for, what is it, sometimes four or five, six months with your flexor tendons, but doing it from your intrinsics, because that's what's still working, then after six months, how many people do you think are going to exercise after tenolysis or two-stage for that matter uh, with PIP DIP flexion after six months of using your NP flexion and intrinsics. You have to guide them through that and show them that they're doing it the wrong way and then you have to start moving a different way. And if they can't do it themselves, then you have to make splints that sort of encourage them to move or use whatever paraphernalia you want to use to encourage moving from PIP and DIP. So the cortex, the brain has something to do with this too. Uh, the brain has a lot to do with it. Yeah. And that rolls perfectly into our next section, tips for better outcomes. Thank you for joining us at Hand Therapy Heroes. Please leave a raving five-star review when you can and share with your colleagues. Part two will be released soon and guarantees continued brilliance with Gwen. Please email info at handtherapy.com and put in the subject line Gwen for Gwen's reference list. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Hand Therapy Heroes. Please subscribe and leave a five-star review. Visit handtherapy.com and register for our newsletter containing free content and courses about our fascinating hands. Hold hands today for a more functional tomorrow.